listen, you can turn the music up as loud as you want, but the pain is still there. And we don't need a break from the torment. We need the torment broken. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. This morning we are going to continue our study. And I want to open with a story I read about this week about an Englishman by the name of Sir Christopher Wren. Wren was considered the greatest English architect of the 17th century. I want to show you some of the works that uh, Sir Christopher Wren designed. He designed St. Paul's Cathedral in London, a beautiful architecture. Um, He developed the Sheldonian Theater in Oxford, also a beautiful um, place. If you can catch up with me, Chris, do you have a picture of that? Awesome. Very, very pretty. But he was also the founder of the Royal Society, one of the three founding members of that. And he lived in a luxury home in Windsor. And imagine this. He commuted to work on a boat. Wouldn't that be an awesome way to get to work? And so the Great Fire of London in 1666 destroyed about 70 to 80,000 homes. And so he was responsible for rebuilding a lot of the churches and a lot of the known architecture in Uh, city of London. And so he was appointed the King's Surveyor of Works. Now, one of his smaller projects was the Windsor Town Hall. So the town hall came together and they wanted him to be the one to rebuild their town hall. And so he constructed the building with some, as you can notice, some beautiful exterior pillars. But as he presented it to the town hall people, the leaders of the town hall said, I love the exterior pillars, but there's nothing in the interior, and we're afraid that the roof could collapse. And so they went back to the architect, and they said, can you please add some interior pillars? Well, of course, Sir Christopher Wren objected, and he said, my architect will hold up. Uh, my architecture will hold up, so just want you to know that. And so um, they demanded that he do it, and so finally he said, that's fine. And he actually installed four pillars, and I don't know if you can show this one, but if you can see here, if you can see with your eye, they don't actually touch the ceiling. And so he kind of did the job, but he did it where they don't even touch. And so uh, tourists still come today, and they laugh, and they take pictures of the faux support beams. And those beams don't support anything except for Wren's architectural genius. And so uh, as we open up the book of 1 Samuel, don't be distracted by the screens today, please. Um, we are reminded that today, like those beams, we can often also be misled into thinking that what looks right and looks good and looks strong is actually just an appearance. It's just on the outside. And we're going to learn today that God doesn't look the way man looks. We look at the outward and we're very impressed by it, but God looks for something deeper. He looks on the heart. The measure of a man is not how he looks outwardly. And so that's what we're going to study today. Last week we opened this series looking at the backstory of Saul. He's the first king of Israel, and he was the best man that the people of Israel could produce. And if you're here last week, we saw how Saul's name meant literally the one that you've been praying for. And yet, um, even though he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel, and he was young, and he was rich, and he was handsome, and he was spiritual, and he was humble, though all that is true, the best specimen that man could produce still fell short. We were reminded last week that we aren't to try to be better Saul's, 
that you and I are actually prideful failures who need a better king who comes to us in humility to lead us in righteousness, and yet in the midst of that offers his own life as a ransom. So today we're going to see a better king uh, to replace Saul, and it's a young boy named David. And if you've ever been the young, if you're the youngest in your family, you're going to be excited about this sermon today. Any, anybody here is the baby of the family? Let me see you. Yeah. Uh, the firstborn are always quick to kind of, yeah, I'm the firstborn. But this is a sermon for maybe the baby of the family. So as we open uh, chapter 16, we have really two big sections. You may have noticed that as Ryan read through the scripture. We have kind of a hinge from verse 13 to verse 14. So if we were going to break this chapter up, we have two big ideas, two big sections But what we're going to do in our sermon today is we're going to look at three ideas, okay? So on the screen, here's an outline. Take a picture, jot it down as a best practice for note-taking. If you're watching us live on Facebook, welcome. But here's the three things I want you to know today. Samuel's concern, verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to see God's chosen, verses 6 through 13. It's not who you're expecting. And then finally, in the second half of the text, we'll look at David's consignment or David's commission in verses 14 through 23. So uh, that's where we're going today. Let's begin and look at Samuel's concern as God's prophet has now been given the command to anoint a new king. There's already a king, but now he's supposed to anoint a new king. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? How long? This is an indictment a little bit against Samuel. How long? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel. And then here's the command, second half of verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go. Be ready to anoint the new king. I will send you, where? To Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You Israelites wanted a king, there's your king, he failed. Now I'm going to provide for myself a true and better king. So as we open up this chapter with Samuel grieving over the fall of King Saul, we realize this is a subtle rebuke from Yahweh to his prophet. God's saying, hey, it's time to stop grieving and it's time to move on. And all of us who grieve for the loss of a loved one, there is a season of grief and mourning and that is a a thing that's real. There's a time to grieve, there's a time to mourn, and then there's a time to move on. And um, there's not been a death here, but there's certainly uh, a, a great... Uh, fall that is something that we mourn over. And so now it's time to pick up. It's time to move along. So God instructs Samuel uh, to go to Jesse of Bethlehem. And Jesse has a son that God has provided for himself as a king. Now you get a a sense that Saul was kind of the, the people's choice. He won the people's choice award. But David instead is God's choice. Now as Christians, we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. We trust that God will uh, ultimately bring his sel- himself glory uh, through uh, history. And so one person said this. They said, the rejection of Saul did not force the Lord to a new course of action. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Let me try again from scratch. Rather, God's action followed his omniscient plan in such a way as to use Saul's disobedience as the human occasion for implementing his higher plan. God had permitted the people to have the king of their choice now that, now that that king and their mistake in choosing him had been clearly manifested, God proved the superiority of his own wisdom in raising up a king who would come in fulfillment of his perfect will. You guys know your plan and then God's plan. There's our way and then there's his way. And he says all throughout scripture, his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are in preference 
to our ways. So though you may look at your life and question it and go, I don't understand this, Lord, God smiles and says, I have a better plan than you'd ever expect. And it isn't always for what you're expecting, like everything's gonna be rosy and turn out. People die, trials come, there is sorrow, there is suffering, but in the midst of that, God has a greater plan. So in the midst of that, look at verse two, Samuel said, um, time out. <laughs> How can I go? How can I go anoint a new king? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. All right, so if I can have your attention now. Obviously, this is a concern, big concern. He's basically saying, imagine God asks you to do this. He's saying, okay, Lord, I can't go announcing to everyone on Facebook. Um, first of all, it doesn't exist. Um, but I can't go announcing to everyone that I'm going to anoint a new king or this will be seen as an act of treason and I'll be put to death. And so God doesn't instruct Samuel to lie here. He just says, I just want you to obey. Just go and obey me in what I've called you to do. God's instruction is for him to come and to just bring a sacrifice and to be prepared to make uh, an anointing. And so that's what he ends up doing. Uh, he also anoints the future king of Israel, but this is to be accompanied by a sacrifice. And so God is not telling Samuel, hey, make this public. Tell everyone, get the word out. Just make a sacrifice, bring your anointing oil, God will do the rest. So look at verse three. Verse three says, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And here's what will happen. I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So um, listen, Samuel didn't have to complicate this. Just do what I'm telling you to do, and in the moment, as you're obeying, I'll show you what to do next. And then in that moment, be ready to hear my next instruction. I think that often we complicate God's will, and we feel like, listen, Lord, before I obey you and step out, I need to know all of the direction that you want me to go in from start to finish, from first to last. And often God doesn't do that. Um, he just encourages us, like Samuel, just to look to the Word of God, the instruction of God, and just be obedient to what he's speaking to us. Amen? So we need to be willing to just follow and trust. Samuel has a valid concern, and there's a definite chance he could be executed for this action. But rather than fearing the government or fearing man, Samuel has to choose to fear God. And you and I are given that same uh, choice. We could fear man or we could fear God. So notice his response in verse four, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, awesome. And he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? So uh, just to explain what's happening, he arrives at Bethlehem, very small town. Uh, its name is two Hebrew words, Beth, which means house, and Lehem, which means bread. So this is literally the house of bread. And this is the town of Ruth and Boaz from the book of Ruth. So the elders come out to the city gate, the town gate, to meet Samuel. And notice that they're trembling. So this is, they're physically anxious. They're uh, quite nervous. And you're wondering, why would they be nervous? Well, remember, this is the same guy from last week who hacked King Agag to pieces. <laughs> and so I'd also be trembling if he showed up in my neighborhood. Uh, and so... The, the deeper thing that's happening, though, is an un unannounced visitor from, uh, visit from a prophet could spell not always peace, but sometimes judgment. And so they came out going, uh, uh, is this a good visit? Is this a bad visit? Do we need to prepare some things at home? Uh, do we need to prepare ourselves to meet our maker? What's about to happen here? And so they ask, are you coming peaceably? Now, thankfully, verse 5, 
He said, peaceably. I'm here. Don't worry, guys. You're not going to be wiped out. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So then he says, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, not in my notes, just kind of observing here. It's interesting, Jesse uh, was one of the elders of the city because he's there with them. So Jesse was important in the city, uh, and he brings his sons to the sacrifice. Now, we learn from the book of Ruth that Jesse is not just in the town that they're in, but he's actually a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. You can jot this verse down, uh, take a picture. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. I'm not going to try. I'm not even going to attempt it. Um, There's some names up there. I'm just going to give you the last section where it says, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So David was a descendant of Boaz. So according to the Talmud, it was believed by the Jews that David's mother's name was Nitzavet. And we aren't really sure if that's 100%, but we are sure that whatever her name was, she was absolutely Jesse's girl, okay? She was definitely Jesse's girl. Where can we find a woman like that? Anyway, look it up later if you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Samuel has consecrated the household of Jesse. He's prepared the sacrifice. Lame sermon jokes. And Jesse is now going to bring his sons before Samuel to see which one of them is anointed as king. You guys follow me so far? Are you with me? So look at the next section, God's chosen. Okay, the prophet's concerned, but here's the chosen one. Verse 6, when they came, Samuel, he looked on Eliab, the oldest, the firstborn, the tall guy. And he thought, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord's anointed, of course, means simply the one God has chosen. So Samuel thinks, okay, yeah, here's the firstborn, obvious. He's tall. He's the oldest. He must be the new king. You can kind of picture Eliab being broad-shouldered and presidential, much like Saul. And the obvious thought when you look at a family of eight boys is you look at the oldest and say, well, it's got to be, and they're fighting all the time, I'm sure, home life with a group of sons, eight sons, they're probably fighting all the time. So surely the oldest one is the leader. He's got to kind of be the ringleader, and you're always kind of jockeying for who's going to win and, and king of the mound, and surely the biggest oldest one is typically the one who wins. And that's true in my family because I was the oldest of three. And so, amen. Yes and amen. But is that the one whom God has chosen? Well, look at the next verse. We've, we've now uh, looked at this in our time of worship and singing, but look at it again. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Why? Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart one of the first scriptures I memorized as a child. The Lord looks on the heart. God's sovereign choice had nothing to do with outward impressions or the fact that Eliab was the firstborn. Man sees the outward, but see, God sees the heart. This morning, you may be here and you dress up outwardly with fine clothing or with good works, and that may impress some men or, or some women. They may see your faithful church attendance your giving statement. They may see your hands lifted during worship or your bumper stickers or your verse of the day posts or your head bowed during a public prayer. But none of those things mean that you are a follower of Christ. God looks beneath the veneer and he sees either a heart of stone or he sees a heart of flesh, a heart that's cold and lifeless and dead, or he sees a heart that has been made alive and is quickened to worship him. 
this morning, I don't care what your background is, you either love your sin or you despise it. You either trust your soul to Christ, your captain, or you feel that you must contribute your good works to his finished work to sufficiently complete the job. You're either on the wide road to destruction or you're on the narrow path to eternal life. And you could be here this morning and think that because everyone thinks that you're a Christian, that must mean that you are. But you're greatly and you're gravely mistaken. Jesus would say this morning, ye must repent. Ye must be born again. There is no one righteous, the scripture tells us, not one. And I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure that means your own righteous deeds will fail you in the end. And so uh, how you look on the outside is irrelevant. God looks on the heart. And so if you're here today and you're trusting in what looks like Christianity on the outside, but there's no reality of God, of the spirit in your life in the heart, um, then you are on the road to destruction. You need to be born again. Well, let's read on. It says in verse 8, it says, Then Jesse called Abinadab, and then Shema, and then seven of his sons. And verse 10, Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. So I don't know if you're following what's happening here. Samuel is scratching his head. Because God has already told him in verse 1, hey, I'm going to provide a king for myself from Jesse, from Jesse's household, one of his sons. And so here's all of Jesse's sons. And God has said no to each one of them. Nope, nope, nope. And so Samuel turns to Jesse and he's like, did you forget a boy? Do you remember how many sons that you have? What's going on here? I'm not following. Uh, Jesse has eight sons, but he's only brought seven of them to present to Samuel. He's not even considered his youngest, David. David's not on anyone's radar. He wasn't even invited to the sacrifice with his older brothers. Perhaps his brothers are thinking, well, David, well, yeah, there's David, but he's the shepherd kid. He's out in the field with the sheep. He's the little ruddy guy that we don't involve in any of the important decisions with dad at the gate. And so we're going on an important mission, David. Stay out and watch the sheep. Hey, you need to stay home and babysit and sheep sit. And we've got to go over here and do some important spiritual business with the prophet. So stay home. We've got important business to do. None of them are thinking that this lowly servant boy is the one who God would even regard. So David doesn't matter to this conversation. And so Jesse, like Samuel, is tempted to believe, hey, God chooses the best and the brightest, and the biggest, and the oldest, and the important, and the powerful. Things that we as humans are dazzled by. David Gusick says this, God often chooses unlikely people to do his work so that all know that the work is God's work, not man's work. Amen? Come on, amen that this morning. That's you and I. We're the unlikely whom God has chosen. If that doesn't get you excited today, I got nothing. This is who God has chosen. Look around for a minute. Just nod your head as you look around. Yeah, we're, we're the unlikely. Hey, I've got the vantage point here. <laughs> I can see everything and everybody, and you can see me, and there's definitely an unlikely guy right here. And so look at verse 11. Don't amen that. Who amen that? What's going on over there? These young playroof folks, I'll tell you what. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. Send and get him. Where, where is he? For we will not sit down till he comes here. Wow, talk about urgency. I'm not even gonna sit down. Like, bring the sun. And so you can just see kind of, maybe Eliab went like, okay, I'll, I'll go get him. Uh, you know, was, was Shema, was Abinadab, were they the ones that went and fetched David? And so they sent and brought him in. It says in verse 12, now he was ruddy 
And he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, David is invited in from the fields. And here we learn a few initial things about him. We'll we'll learn a little bit more in just a moment. But first we're told, notice in verse 12, that he's ruddy. Circle that for me. He's ruddy. Okay, what is ruddy? Well, having a ruddy complexion means that you kind of have a red face. So this can happen from acne or from a prolonged exposure to the sun. And certainly being out with the sheep would have exposed David to the elements, including the heat of the sun. But I kind of like to think of him as acne-ridden. So he's the kid who comes in with the crackly voice, right? And he's got the acne pit scarring maybe. And so um, he's young, and maybe the hormones that contributed to the acne and the redness of skin is kind of what's noticeable. You see him go, oh, wow, that guy's ruddy. Right, notice that. That's the first thing that is noticed in the scripture. But then we learn that he has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. So that makes up for the acne. Okay? So he's a handsome guy or the red face. We're not sure exactly how old David is here. But the historian Josephus guessed he's around 10 years old. And we can be safe to maybe guess that he's somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15. So he's a middle schooler. All right? He's got soft eyes. He's got red skin. He's a cute kid. This is not handsome, by the way, that was referred to when it was told about us, um, about Saul, that Saul was handsome. This is a different kind of handsome. When you look at Saul, you're like, man, that guy is, he is good looking. He is like, he is a leader. When you look at David, it's more like, aww, he's so cute. He's the fry guy at McDonald's, right? He's just, aww, he's just so cute. But notice what the Lord says. The Lord says, this is he. This is he. And he instructs Samuel to anoint him as king. I love verse 13. Verse 13 tells us that this happened in the midst of his brothers. I love that. So Samuel walks past Eliab. He walks past uh, Shema, Abinadab, all the rest, and he anoints this little red shepherd boy as the future king. What a surprise. What a surprise. Can you and I not this morning be surprised at the sovereign election of God? Look at what Spurgeon said. He said, I think I see you all surprised. And you say, how can it be? I, chosen of God, my many sins, my great infirmities, my doubts, my barrenness in God's service, the coldness of my heart, all these make me go mourning. Can it be that yet he has ordained me to a kingdom? It is even so. Let your faith grasp the truth and go your way rejoicing. Wow. You see, this anointing that happens here was a secret act. It wasn't to be made public for many years. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, comes upon David from that day forward. Now, I just want to note on this theologically, give a little bit of doctrine here. The activity of the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost was to empower people who were serving God. So that was not a salvific connection. Okay, don't make that salvific connection. To have the Holy Spirit now after Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended, we have the Spirit of God. To have the Holy Spirit as a Christian indwelling us as believers today means that we're saved. So to have the Holy Spirit upon you in the Old Testament did not mean that you were saved. It meant you were empowered by God to do what he had called you to do. Now that bit of information right there is a pivot uh, when compared to verse 14. So we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Now look at verse 14. Now this is a big change. Um, From here on out, Saul no longer has the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He's, that means he's no longer in service of God. He no longer is empowered. In fact, now he's provoked by a completely different kind of spirit. So let's kind of turn the page to the rest of the chapter and look at this third idea, which is David's consignment. Look at verse 14. It says, now the spirit of the Lord, the same spirit that came upon David in verse 13, departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, that's a fancy way of saying, hey, why don't you send us to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, okay, sounds good. Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, have your attention. There's a lot happening here, and there's a lot that I want us to understand that's not happening, okay? So please jot these few things down. I want you to know what's not happening here. Again, I said this last week, we can't form doctrinal beliefs based on obscure verses. So please don't take um, the following assumptions or make the following assumptions from these verses. Three things. Here's what's not happening here. Number one, this does not mean that God sends demons to torment people, okay? I need you to know that today. God does not send demons to torment people. Number two, this does not mean that music makes demons disappear, so if you're being oppressed by a demon, turn on worship music and they go away, okay? Thirdly, this does not mean that demons are solely responsible when someone's experiencing mental anguish, okay? And I want to unpack those for a minute. Okay, often what God is permitting is described as what he is doing. Does that make sense? God is simply allowing this evil spirit to bring anguish to Saul. And God is using this turn of events to bring David into the service of King Saul. And so this permission is still a part of God's sovereign plan. The demon may have produced torment, but listen, that doesn't mean that all mental illness is a result of demonic influence. One person said this, King Saul would now be diagnosed as a typical example of manic depressive insanity. The periods of intense gloom with occasional outbreaks of homicidal violence for no particular reason, the delusion that people were plotting against him, these are mistakeable, okay? Mental illness is a real thing. Depression, anxiety, anguish, those are all a part of our fallen condition. We can't say every issue mentally is spiritual in nature. In other words, um, maybe you're not getting it. We can't blame our donut addiction if you have that. Some of us may have that. I don't know. I don't struggle with that. But maybe you struggle to each his own. We can't blame our addiction to donuts on a demon of chocolate. Does that make sense? The demon, of the demon of Dunkin' Donuts, right? The triple D. Triple D is just after me. No. Um, do I believe that demons exist? Yes. Do I believe they have the ability to torment, tempt, and accuse God's people? Absolutely. But true believers cannot be possessed by a demonic spirit because we're already indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so we can't blame all of our issues on demons, but in some cases there may be demonic influence, and we can't discount that either. So in Saul's case... Whenever music was played by the lyre, Saul had a reprieve in his suffering. He was given kind of a break. Now, this may have been an attempt for him to cry out for the Holy Spirit to come back upon him because in chapter 10, verse 5, we read that music accompanied the prophets who Saul first prophesied with. So maybe he's thinking, I need this, I need this power again. So get the music out, and when the music's playing, I'm, I'm prophesying, I'm thinking about God. 
We read in 2 Kings 3.15 that Elisha was seeking a revelation from God. So he says, I need a revelation. Somebody play a harp. So the harps accompanied uh, hearing from God. In 2 Chronicles 25.1, the musicians were prophesying along with the music they were playing. So perhaps this is what Saul's hoping for. Maybe the Spirit will come and I'll be kind of given a break when there's music. I'm not going to go into this day, the connection between worship and musical instruments, um, but that's certainly there. Uh, so um, one poem noted this, music has charms to soothe a savage beast. Okay, so um, ultimately he said, where are we going to find a skilled musician to play for Saul? And amazingly, we haven't learned this about David yet, but David was well known for a few things, and one of the things he was well known for being is a skilled musician. So see, this is part of all, all a part of God's plan all along. No accident here. Look at verse 18, David's reputation. It says, one of the young men, this is Saul's young men, answered and said, okay, I know a musician. Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Wow. It's interesting, David's brothers didn't see that in him. But the men in the king's court saw that. Isn't that often the case? So here's the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. We've already seen he's the youngest. He's the most overlooked. But then it says that he's skillful and plain. I want to walk through each one of these descriptions. It says he's skillful and plain. So he's a musician. Uh, Saul was requesting someone who could play the, the lyre well. Now, I'm not going to go into worship ministry dynamics, but listen... We, we know this, right? You can't just say, I have, a, I have the right heart. I want to be on the worship team. I have a good heart. That's great. You need, the, you need to have a good heart, but you also need to know how to play an instrument. And, and we're not looking for virtuosos, right? Someone who can get up and, I play every instrument. You know, it's not that, but we do have to have skill, and we should always be seeking to improve our craft. And so I love that David was a skillful musician, but I love that he was that when no one noticed. On the screen, Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, you and I, we're to, do our best. we're to do our best, even when no one's looking, because God uses skill for his glory. So the young man also notes that David is two things. He's a man of valor and also a man of war. So David has proven himself not to be soft, not to be a pushover, but someone who steps up to the battle. We'll see that next week as we open up 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. Not only that, but notice that it says that David has prudent speech and he's a man of good presence. So he's not just a musician. He's not just a warrior. He actually has good presence and when he opens his mouth, there's wisdom. But the final statement I think is the most impactful. These are Saul's men and they're saying, hey, this is what I've noticed about this man. His reputation is that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with them. Whenever that was used, that's often used about the prophet. That's a description of Samuel. And now it's being used of, of this young boy. It's a picture of the king being the one who God is with. So, man, no matter what you may have going for you, the most important thing is that the Lord is with you. And so look at this resume. This is incredible. No wonder we read in verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat for the sacrifice and sent them by David his son to Saul. So David leaves the sheep. He comes to the king with a donkey carrying bread and wine and an offering. Look at verse 21. 
And David came to Saul and at that moment entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And David became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service. In other words, this isn't part-time. He's going to live with me. He's found favor in my sight. And verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. This is more like a guitar, less like a harp. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So not only is David playing this music in the court of the king, but he's now been promoted, notice with me, in verse 21, to the king's armor bearer. This is huge. This is more, sometimes you misunderstand, what is the armor bearer? This is not just a caddy who's hanging out with the king and kind of pulls out swords instead of clubs. Okay, it's more than that. It's more than that. The armor bearer was a trusted chief assistant. So you would fight alongside the king and you often would carry the shield of the king. And the king had to completely trust you. This is kind of like the person who drinks, right? The, the cup bearer, the armor bearer. These are the guys that are the most trusted, the most uh, close to the king. And so David found favor in the sight of Saul and then began to refresh him with his works. And next week, we're going to see him take on this great enemy of the people of God, the giant Goliath, who to all uh, estimations was invincible. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to apply this passage of Scripture to us in two ways, but then I want us to kind of zoom a little bit deeper than that and understand a gospel focus from this text, all right? So two ways that we can apply this. Number one, if you're taking note, jot this down. We need to remember from Samuel's experience to trust God, not our circumstances, amen? Yeah, it's easy to amen a church. Uh, Trust God not the circumstances. Samuel the prophet had every reason to fear what God was calling him to do. Every reason. But in the end, he places his faith in the word of the Lord. Church, we need to follow Samuel's example. If all we do is look at the circumstances in our lives, we could be tempted to believe, you know what? God wants me to be comfortable. You know what? God wants me to be wealthy. He wants me to be prosperous. And that is his only will for my life. And Samuel here is willing to put himself directly in harm's way if that was what God was instructing him to do. Now, for our context, I think about the young families and the singles and even some who are older who are willing to trade their careers, to trade their retirement, and extend God's glory to the ends of the earth by planting churches in unreached people groups. I think about the circumstances of life that would scream at them, and so would their families, would just scream at them, go where you make the most money. No, live where you can be peaceful and successful and close to grandma. But listen, that's not where God always calls us. We have to be willing to go where God is leading us. So like Samuel, we need to trust God and not our our circumstances. Note uh, that none of this made sense to Samuel. And he objected because he thought that obeying God would actually lead to personal harm, but in the end he obeyed and he saw God's sovereign plan come together in such a beautiful way. Listen, church, our feelings lie, but the word of God is true. Our situations are going to change, but the word of God endures forever. Our life is fleeting, but God's word remains. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers, uh, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's trust God and not our circumstances because our circumstances are going to change. Don't trust your feelings. Your feelings will lie. But trust the word of God. Trust God. He's in control 
and we can look to his word. So that's the first thing I want us to know from this. Secondly, and this is what I want to spend a little more time on, we need to start seeing what God sees. Start seeing what God sees. We are so quick to be like Samuel where we look at the outward. But see, God sees deeper than what's literally skin deep. He sees the heart, and we need to see the heart as well. There's a story told of Thomas Aquinas when he began to study classes at the University of Paris in the 13th century. He was a very quiet student, and his fellow students mistook his silence for simplicity. And so they began to call Thomas uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians of the church, they called him the dumb ox. And so they were absolutely surprised when he began to excel and went on to uh, write great works of theology. So Thomas Aquinas was a misjudged genius. And so you and I can do the same thing. We look at someone and we go, ah, that's not that impressive on the outward. And yet we don't see what's in the heart. We see someone and we're very impressed, and yet there's something missing in the heart. And so I think we do this four, four different ways. This is not exhaustive, but, but, but jot these down, jot these down. Four ways that we look at the outward appearance. Four ways that we look at the outward appearance. This is what we do versus what God does. First, we do this. We emphasize the spiritual, or the superficial rather, over the spiritual. We learned last week Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. He was everything that we would expect in a king. And yet inwardly, he's jealous, he's prideful, and he's a self-centered mess. David, in contrast, is the young, ruddy, overlooked kid. There was nothing that we expected in him to be king. And yet he's the man after God's own heart. And so often we do the same thing. We are impressed with what our eyes behold. We're impressed with a body. We're impressed with, uh, with the outward, superficial. We have superficial on every magazine cover. And, and yet that, we don't look at what has true substance, which is the spirit. Secondly, we do this. We, in Lakewood Ranch, so if you're from Sarasota, Bradenton, you're good. But in Lakewood Ranch, we emphasize wealth over wisdom. Too often, I see people enamored by those who are wealthy, and they begin to treat them differently with maybe more honor or more respect than they would with someone who is poor. So, you know, my kids tell me, like, hey, Dad, we got to buy Lululemon. That's the new brand. we got to have that. we got to have that because that's, that's what's in. That's expensive. Or, and, I, and you kind of scoff at that, like, yeah, kids don't get it. But then I see someone with a Tesla, and I'm like, man, that guy's amazing. Man, I wish I had that. That's cool. That's, that guy's important. And we measure ourselves at the stoplight. They're in, more important than me because of their status. They drive a nicer car. They're, or maybe they're less important because they're in more debt than I'm in. But nonetheless, we measure ourselves. Oh, you live in that neighborhood. Oh, we won't be visiting. But we'll pray for you. Hopefully you'll get through it. And so we fail to see that someone has incredible wisdom and importance even if they're poor. Listen, your net worth does not determine your actual worth. So stop emphasizing someone's wealth over and above their wisdom. Thirdly, we emphasize, all of us, image over integrity. You know how this is. Hey, it's time to take a photo, right? How difficult is this now? It's just, it's hard. We, we can't even take a photo anymore. I just want to, I want to go to the beach with my family and snap a selfie. And we can't do that. We can't, you guys know this. You can't, well, hold on, everyone. Let me, fit, let me look for a minute, okay? Got the hair good. And we've got to have the right filter and the right angle and the sun. Oh, we didn't smile on that one. The picture looks bad. And we're so quick to have the right lighting and the right smile. And then we post the post on Instagram and then the heading is keeping it real. Are you kidding me? <laughs> There's nothing real about that photo. 
There's our Instagram life, and then there's our real life, and for many of us, those are completely disjointed. We live in a day where the filter is more important than faithfulness. We, we highlight celebrities who have these seemingly amazing lives as we're scrolling, and yet, listen, it's all an image. We're slower to highlight men and women who aren't bright and beautiful to the world, but they've been faithful over the decades to share the gospel and live the gospel. And so we're guilty of this. We emphasize image over integrity. And finally, number four, uh, we look at the outward by emphasizing capabilities over character. How often are we looking for someone with great gifting, and yet we're willing to overlook the great character flaws that they have under the surface? And see, this is one of the reasons we keep seeing pastors becoming celebrities and then have awful moral failures because we're part of the problem. We're the ones sharing their sermons and we're the ones flocking to the conferences they're speaking at and we're perpetuating the celebrity problem. Ultimately, we're saying, oh, they're so bright like a supernova. And instead of realizing supernovas have problems, they burn brightly and then they implode. And we need to stop doing that. We need to submit to men and women who are the opposite of these things. So leave that up for a minute. We need to look for men and women who are spiritual, men and women who have integrity, men and women who have character, who are wise. Uh, and maybe in the background, you know, they're kind of unimpressive and they're kind of hidden away. Uh, but we need to look for people like that in our lives and, and listen to them and learn from them. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. As we close this morning... I want to invite our worship team forward. And as we started last week's sermon, we could again be tempted to think, you know, I just need to live like David lived. And so uh, go ahead and close your Bibles. I, I want to just make this point today. Just get settled for a minute. We could read this text this morning and think, I need to be like David. I need to be a skilled musician. <laughs> I need to be prudent in speech. I need to have valor. But pay attention, church. Don't be distracted this morning. You and I aren't David here. You know who we're more like? We're more like Saul. See, like Saul, we have tried in our own strength to appease God, and yet we've come up short, and now judgment is looming. And to make matters worse, we find that life in this fallen condition only stirs up more torment, more agony, more drama, and more anguish. And we try to drown out the pain with music, or drinking, or pleasure, or work, or self-righteous religion, and we realize it's not actually bringing spiritual peace. Listen, you can turn the music up as loud as you want, but the pain is still there. And we don't need a break from the torment. We need the torment broken. And there's one who has come to defeat the power and the curse of sin and death, and his name is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is a true and better David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem a man of valor and a man of war. Jesus comes with fire in his eyes, both the fire of purity and the fire of judgment. Jesus, a true and better David, is prudent in speech and he's a man of good presence. That means he speaks condemnation to those who are confident in their own works for salvation. And yet he speaks peace to those who place their faith in him. His presence both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Jesus, the true and better David's name, means God with us, Emmanuel. Well, there's nothing of Jesus' appearance that would draw us to him. He was despised and rejected by his own. He's the son, the true son of the father, the great shepherd 
who loses not one of the sheep that his father has given him. Jesus approaches, coming on a donkey, with his body the bread, his blood the wine, with himself as the sacrifice, and he brings refreshment to the king as he works the works the father had given him. Jesus, not you, is truly the man after God's own heart. Do you know him today? Have you trusted your eternity to Christ? Today, as we close the service, we're going to acknowledge again that it's not me, but it's Christ in me. And so this morning, if that's not a truth for you, if you do not have Christ in you, you've not repented of your sins and trusted Christ, then singing these words is actually a lie. You're, you're mimicking them with your lips, but they're not a reality in your heart. So don't be fooled into thinking the outward appearance makes something happen on the heart. I want you to know today, you must repent, you must trust Christ, you must be born again. And so we're going to have some folks available for prayer in the back of the gathering today as we dismiss after this song. I want to invite you to come to Christ by coming and asking for prayer. We're going to pray with you. We're going to share the gospel with you and what that means. And we want you to know Jesus. So don't leave today just believing that because you're here today and you smiled and clapped your hands or, or sang the lyrics that you're a Christian. You must be born again. Know Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust him today. Let's bow our heads together. As we pray, Father, we thank you that you've sent your one and only son to bear our sin, to take our place. And that great exchange for our rebellion, you took upon our sin and the wrath of God. And yet in exchange for that, you have given us your righteousness imputed to us on our, on, on our behalf because of your finished work. And now, Lord, we have salvation and we have hope. And so, Lord, today we ask that you would reach those who are far from you, that you would allow them to trust Christ. Father, draw them to your son. And Lord, we pray for all of us that as we sing this song, we'd be reminded that it's not I, but it's Christ in me. To that end, Lord, we love you and we look to you. And it's in your name alone that we can pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.